is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Alzheimer's disease is a major medical problem across the country and here, of course, in California. We'll go in depth into a new report about how things could get worse in the near future. And still to come, we sit down with L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna to ask the question, have we seen the changes in the department that he said we'd see? We start, though, with the short-term and long-term impact of Alzheimer's disease on this state. April Thames is the director of the UCLA Social Neuroscience and Health Psychology Lab. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Well, of course, I guess in one sense, it shouldn't be a surprise that California, with, what, 40-plus million people, would have a large number and will have a large number of patients uh, with Alzheimer's, but how big of a problem will it be in this state? It will be a big problem because we're expected that by 2050, there will be over 12 million people. If the numbers continue at the rate as they are now, right now we know there are over 6 million Americans with Alzheimer's disease. So you can imagine that in a large state like California, that this problem is going to be even more, you know, even worse. And as, you know, lifespans have gotten to the length that they are, people are staying alive a lot longer, but medicine is having a hard time keeping up. That's the issue here with Alzheimer's. And and does this mean we're going to see an explosion in Alzheimer's patients? And uh, in view of a lack of any kind of a real uh, effective treatment and certainly not a cure, are we going to be able to handle that? Well, we're, we need to do early screening and early diagnosis because that is what is going to help people live longer with the disease. And even with some of the treatments that are out there, they really show effectiveness on people who are in the more early stages. So I think right now, in, a, in order to be able to you know, try to control the situation, we need to be doing more cognitive screenings early and also helping people to plan their lives moving forward. Is there a, in your view, a breakthrough just around the corner? I don't think that it's just around the corner. I think it will take some time, but it's going to take participation in clinical trials. And we need more diverse representation in clinical trials so that we can see, does this, you know, new medications work for everybody? And unfortunately, um, the studies that have come out, there's some promising data, but we want to see the cognitive benefit. And that's the most important thing. There's been showing clearance of some of the neuropathology, but is it actually having an effect on behavior? That is what still sort of remains to be determined. So what do you say to people like uh, Charles and myself in our age group, and we get a little paranoid if we we forget where we put our keys? Uh, Should we uh, run and go get screening and early? And and if we find out that, you know, we've got signs that we might develop some problems later on, how worried should we be and what should we do immediately? I think it's good to be paranoid and everybody should have a, a cognitive assessment. Uh, I'm a neuropsychologist, so I perform neuropsychological assessments. And even if there's nothing wrong, at least it's a baseline. Therefore, if, and as you get older, you can go back and look at how you did on certain cognitive tests when you first tested. And that's really how we're able to look at the cognitive trajectory over time and whether or not there is a true decline.
But you know what happens in reality is people go to their physicians, right? Because most people don't go to get a lot of fancy uh, tests. And right. the physician says, well, how do you feel? The person says, I feel fine. Uh, the physician says, you found yourself to your way to my office. And the person goes, yeah, I did. So the physician says, stop worrying. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's really important, though, that people, I always encourage my patients and their family members to document any sort of changes, even if it seems like they're being overly concerned or overly worried. It's better to err on that side than the alternative of waiting until things get too severe, because at that point, then, you know, the, the opportunities for, say, there might be a reversal cause. And some of the dementias that we see, you know, are vascular related, related to hypertension, related to diabetes. And so, you know, getting medical factors under control can sometimes reverse some of the symptoms. But nevertheless, it's it's better to err on the side of caution. Very, very quickly, uh, what would some of those changes, small changes be that people should be on the lookout for? People should be on the lookout primarily for when they are forgetting, um, say, tasks that they've done that have been highly familiar to them, you know, throughout their life. Um, you know, all of us will occasionally forget where we put our keys, especially if we're stressed out or, you know, or feeling anxious. But when when the when you're forgetting things that you know that I should know this, this is this, you know, should come second, you know, nature that's when it's important to start thinking about getting um, checked, getting a screener at least. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, April Timms, director at the UCLA Social Neuroscience and Health Psychology Lab. Right now, though, uh, Russian leader Vladimir Putin's got a problem. The International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant for him. This over allegations of war crimes connected to the kidnapping of kids in Ukraine. Russia and foreign policy expert William Pomeranz is director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Nope. I think we lost him. We'll try think, to get him think, back. Yes, yeah. I think we lost yeah. William. But uh, to continue what we were talking about, so uh, I'm not sure this was entirely unexpected, but it is always a surprise and somewhat shocking because world leaders are rarely issued arrest warrants. I can't honestly recall the last time I remember hearing about an arrest warrant for the leader of a nation. I'm sure it's happened. It just doesn't register in my memory. Yeah, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, and I don't want to give the wrong country, but I'm trying to think that maybe to do with one of the Baltic states uh, after some of that conflict in the 90s. But I think we have William Pomerantz back with us, do we? Yes, we do. Sorry about that. No, no. Uh, we were just actually speculating, and you can help us out here. Uh, when was the last time that uh, the leader of a country has been issued an arrest warrant for war crimes. I was thinking maybe one of the Baltic states back in the 90s, or, or no? Yes. Uh, Then-President uh, Milosevic, ah. and I believe a couple of his generals, were uh, brought before the International Criminal Court. Now, forgive me, does, does this arrest warrant mean anything? Uh, is it just symbolic? It is symbolic for the most part. I don't think that Vladimir Putin is going to be traveling to the Netherlands anytime soon to allow jurisdiction to be had. So I don't think he's about to go into the dock uh, in, the, in The Hague. That being the case, uh, the fact that Putin has now been indicted uh, 
Uh, the fact that he will be have some of his international travel uh, basically uh, limited, uh, I think is an important sign. And I think it is a sign for Ukraine that there is some movement in terms of the crimes against humanity and the war crimes that Russia has committed in Ukraine. Well, let me ask you something. Could this become a bargaining chip? Uh, Because people are always speculating, how is this war going to end? Everybody says it will end one way or the other with some sort of negotiation. Might the fact that there's now an arrest warrant out for Vladimir Putin, could that be put on the table as a a bargaining chip, that uh, you want to settle this uh, war in Ukraine, get rid of this arrest warrant? Um, I don't think so. I think in terms of going forward, I think that it will have some sort of relevance, not to Vladimir Putin, who is firmly entrenched in power, but I think it will make some of his associates pause in terms of to what extent they're going to follow him down uh, in this in this war. Uh, clearly, they are uh, oligarchs who are potentially indictable. Uh, there are other politicians in Russia who may could who could also find themselves in the dock. So I think that this will cause uh, Russian politicians, Russian uh, the Russian elite, uh, to pause and see whether they still want to follow Vladimir Putin. Now, in real world terms, and you mentioned uh, his international travel might be a little curtailed. So an arrest warrant means if he goes somewhere and let's say uh, someone was able to get around his security, uh, they could physically arrest him. What what would that look like and where would he have to go if he were to be arrested? Uh, I think he would have to go someplace uh, where the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction. And so that would not be the United States for example, because the United States has never recognized uh, the International Criminal Court. But there are other countries around the world, especially in Europe, uh, if he were to travel to them or if he were to find himself in those locations, uh, they potentially could send him to the Hague. The important thing for the ICC is that he cannot be tried in absentia. So he physically has to go to the Hague if any sort of trial can take place. Could it backfire the fact that his movements might be curtailed a bit uh, or a lot in terms of Western Europe, for example? Could that only serve to isolate him more? Putin has managed to isolate himself very well from Europe. So I don't think that this would kind of cause, cause him any alarm. I think he's pretty secure in the sense that he can travel to the countries that he wants to travel to. They're mainly in the post-Soviet space, but also China and some, some African countries as well. So I think he can travel. But again, I think now that there has been an arrest warrant introduced, I think the stakes are much higher for his uh, associates. Uh, and therefore, I think that it will have an impact on them potentially and also on Ukraine which has advocated for uh, over a year now that the crimes committed by Russia in Ukraine have to be uh, adjudicated and the Russians have to be held accountable. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Foreign policy expert William Pomeranz with the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute.
And coming up pretty soon, L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna will be live in studio with us to answer questions. Of course he's going to answer questions. Yes. I mean, no, he's going to just sit here. No, he's going to sit there. We're going to ask him questions, and he's going to just glare at us. And then his security will rough us up some. Don't say that. We'll make our own news. Uh, Right now, though, some new research is out that might help explain where COVID-19 originally came from. Uh, They did find a connection with a virus in raccoon dogs for sale at a market in Wuhan, China. Going back to the uh, human uh, animal to human transmission here. Jeremy Camille is a virologist at LSU Health Services Center in Shreveport. He uh, reviewed this study. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. How are you? So uh, this this is just more evidence in support of the animal-human transmission of the virus and a little less for the accidental lab leak theory. That's correct. Yes, it, it really underscores the uh, illegal wildlife trade in China, which is, I think, oh, well over a $23 billion industry with over a million people involved in it uh, as a, a source of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. What exactly, by the way, is a raccoon dog? Well, I think most people in America or the West have never seen one except maybe in a zoo. But it looks a lot like if a, a raccoon and a dog uh, had fused. It look, it's, <laughs> it's like a dog-like animal that looks a lot like a raccoon. I mean, is that, ac- is that actually how it happened? Is it some kind of a mixed, I don't know, a, a mixed no, breed? No, no. Or, no, it can't happen, it, right? It's it's probably something to do with what you call convergent evolution, where animals and di- from different uh, parts of the tree of life start to look similar because having a certain fur pattern or shape of the face is helpful for uh, being uh, having a raccoon-like lifestyle. I don't know. So where does the virus actually originally come from? If it's in the animals for who knows how long, you can tell us how long a virus could be uh, going through an animal community and either making them sick or just kind of sitting there in their bloodstream. And then it gets transmitted to humans and all of a sudden it's able to infect humans. Uh, Why weren't people infected with COVID before this? What happened that made that change? Well, I, I think it's important to know a couple pieces of background information. After the 2003 original SARS outbreak, the U.S. CDC sponsored some work in rural China and just, I think, doing blood tests on people who were in the wildlife trade. And they found an enormous percentage of them had antibodies to SARS-like coronaviruses. So this is 20 years predating where we are today. Um, Now, um, as far as how the virus gets to the market, well, of course, people are both farming animals in rural areas as well as capturing them in jungles to be sold for food in the markets. That practice had been banned after the original coronavirus outbreak of 2003 um, that killed over around 800 people globally and got all the way to Canada before we extinguished it. So that this, this trade was illegalized. Uh, however, obviously, China wasn't enforcing their ban, and they've been trying to cover that up, uh, that they've denied it. So the market had an area. It's a big market. They sold lots of stuff there, uh, seafood, but also live animals. And there's a part of the market where there were live animal stalls. And back in February of last year, 2022, some work came out from the China CDC stating that they did some environmental tests in the market. And there were samples from the animal stall area of the market that were positive for both of the early lineage of the COVID viruses. So this really pinpointed or or shined a light on the market, but 
since that time, you know, the international scientific community, we, scientists, we like to see the receipts. And so these are sequencing data. So people and they sequencing machines spit up files called FASTQ that have all the genetic information that comes out in the run. And so West, we've been waiting uh, in the West, uh, scientists in Australia, France, the U.S., and so on, have been waiting to see this raw data, and China had been holding on to it. My sense is that the Chinese scientists wanted to share it, and maybe they were restricted from doing so by higher ups. Jeremy, but, let, but, but let yeah. me ask you this uh, in terms of the origin question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we do know that animals uh, can get the coronavirus from people, right? Uh, yeah. Couldn't it, could it not have still... Uh, leaked from uh, the lab and perhaps infect a person who then worked in the market and infected the animal? Well, yeah, you, it's as a pure hypothetical, it's really hard to rule that out. But the way that one investigates things is to obtain as many lines of independent, unbiased evidence as possible. And if you look at the the, the data and the analyses that are out there, there's now several strands of evidence that indicate that that didn't happen. First of all, the Wuhan lab, the WIV, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they have two campuses in Wuhan. And the one that's closest to the market is still a good number of kilometers away. It's not like next door to the market or anything. And um, the fact that two of the earliest lineages, that so when the pandemic started, there was the A and the B lineage. The B lineage seemed to spread in people first, and most of the early samples that we detected and knew about were all B lineage samples. And then mm -hmm. only when that first pap that paper came out in 2022, showing that the A lineage was also in the market at one of the earliest times of the pandemic, it starts to make it hard to explain how a lab leak got it to the market because you'd have to have a lab worker get sick, go right. to the market with one lineage, and then later a separate marker, a separate lab worker would have to get contaminated with a different lineage and go to the market. All right. Um, well, that's kind of improbable. Okay, got it. Thank you so much. Uh, Jeremy uh, Camille uh, with LSU Health Center in Shreveport. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna has been in office more than 100 days now. He came to a sheriff's department that was dealing with uh, conflict with the Civilian Oversight Commission and L.A. County supervisors. There was also, and maybe still are, the problems surrounding allegations of deputy gangs. Luna ran on a platform of a more cooperative sheriff's department. So the question is, is he delivering? Sheriff Robert Luna is with us now in the studio. Sheriff, thanks for being with us. Uh, Charles and Rob, uh, thank you so much. I, uh, I'm fans of yours. I hear your voices, and it was very nice to see your faces today. Well, nice thank, to meet you. Thank, thank you. Much. So now the tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> you won't like us after this. Right. So I, we, we said, I said in the setup to you, uh, the key question is, are you delivering? So that is the first question. Are you? Yes. Uh, I've been in office just a little over 100 days. And although we have a long way to go, and uh, obviously we live in a world where it's about not uh, tell me what you're doing, show me what you're doing. So uh, just to go over with your listeners uh, to set the stage for what we've been doing. Uh, one, when, when I was um, when I came in here, uh, I talked about integrity. I talked about accountability and I talked about collaboration. But I want to break that down as to what we have been doing from day one. From an integrity perspective, I came in 
Uh, and I was elected to bring change. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I won by a very large margin. But number one for me was to try and establish a tone that I believe was different with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So I came in uh, setting a positive tone, uh, one that wasn't a, a, an us versus them. This is all about us. The Sheriff's Department belongs to the community. I wanted to establish that I was a professional and I expected everybody around me to be a professional. Uh, I established uh, a foundation of constitutional policing, which meant good policing and to hold people accountable for bad policing. Now, as I yeah, but, but I'm going to interrupt you on that, and, I, and here's why. Because I, can, I know that there are people who are listening, and, and just listen to what you said, and are thinking, well, wait a minute, shouldn't that have always, all those things you articulated, shouldn't that have been the things that the Sheriff's Department has been doing all along, constitutional policing? You would want them to do constitutional policing. So I guess the question is, why wasn't it doing it? I think the majority of the men and women in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department are amazing people. Uh, and as I've been there, uh, I can tell you uh, with the people I've met uh, and the things I'm hearing that the individuals doing the work were good. I think those very good questions you're asking can be asked of the leadership team that was there. And I'm going to say something up front because you will not hear me talk negatively about my predecessor. Uh, that's part of the tone, professional tone that I set coming into the department. I'm looking out the front or the windshield, uh, not looking in the rearview mirror. So let's you don't forget about what's happened. You try and establish a foundation for that constitutional policing. And I think for the most part, a lot of it was happening. But was it the vision that I had of a 21st century sheriff's department that I think the residents of this county deserve? Uh, but that's a very important question because it gets into the next point I was going to make, and that's about accountability. Uh, when we talk about accountability on my very first day, one of the first communications, actually the first communication I put out to the department was that we were going to allow the inspector general back into the building. Uh, that not only meant that uh, he was back in the building, but we sat down uh, within the first week and we talk about uh, things that he needed to perform his job. And we had he had a very lengthy list of things that he needed to do that he had not been allowed to do. So I made sure uh, that we were going to do that. Uh, I also found myself uh, on the phone uh, with uh, members of the Civilian Oversight Commission, as an example, just reestablishing those relationships because they were fractured uh, and setting a new tone for the way we were going to move uh, forward. I'm going to hold I'm going to hold you there yeah. because we, we have to pick up some money. <laughs> by taking a commercial break. And, and we'll have some uh, questions about some of the specifics of setting a new tone and what that means to the department. Yeah. We're talking in studio with uh, L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna, and in-depth will continue after this. And we're back live in studio with the uh, L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna on the job for a little more than 100 days now. And uh, in the last segment, talking about uh, how he's here to set a new tone. He's going to look forward and not look back. He will have no criticisms of his uh, predecessors. Uh, but but my question does revolve a little bit about your predecessor. And without asking you to criticize him, uh, 
there has been a history with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department in the last few years of uh, problems with uh, journalists and reporters, and especially independent journalists and reporters, but not just independent ones, some with uh, major news organizations, that uh, during the protests they felt that they were targeted, that that their insistence that they had media credentials was ignored. They were uh, uh, handled roughly. Uh, they were shot with uh, uh, non-lethal rounds. And in one instance, a reporter for the L.A. Times was targeted at a news conference as a I believe, a, quote, person of interest in the investigation. And and all she had done was cover the inmate death and report on facts around that. Uh, what specifically are you doing in the department today to make sure that deputies understand the place of uh, media and, and, and genuine reporters if we happen to be covering other protests, uh, say, against police brutality in the future here in, in Los Angeles County? Uh, began, I talked about integrity and changing the tone. Uh, changing the tone uh, to be a more professional organization has a lot to do with the way you treat everybody across the board, and that includes our partners in the media. Uh, all of you have a job. The reporters out there have a job. We don't always agree, and we're not going to. But at the end of the day, uh, we need to make sure that our employees are well-trained and they understand uh, what the law is, limitations, but that goes both ways. Uh, So I want to make sure that we continuously have a good relationship uh, and we're sitting down either having coffee uh, or sharing a sandwich together uh, so that when those chaotic times come up in the county of Los Angeles, and they will, we can communicate and correct some of these issues before they come up. Bottom line is uh, we should not be treating anybody in that manner. Let's talk about the relationship between not only the sheriff's department, but but police in general and the community, because we are living through, as you know, uh, very trying times when there's an enormous amount of tension, not just in L.A., but coast to coast, really, between police organizations and the communities that they serve, or are supposed to serve anyway, uh, how can you convince people, especially uh, minority uh, members, and not even minorities in L.A., we're talking pretty much majorities, how can you convince them that after years of being promised that things are going to get better, years of being promised that the relationship is going to be a, a better one between the police organizations and their communities. How do you convince them that this time you're telling the truth? Public trust is absolutely critical uh, to effective uh, policing. Uh, community engagement, uh, community collaboration uh, is critical. And again, it's it it show me what you're going to do uh and and that is it comes down to our interactions every day uh with the community that we serve uh people have to see us and i say they have to but we have to earn it uh that we are the good guys uh but but i do want your listeners to know that this is why i my journey how my journey began in law enforcement uh, you're looking at a kid from East L.A. Uh, who uh, was in a neighborhood where family and neighbors did not trust nor like law enforcement. I got into this job because I thought I could make a difference. 
Uh, it is interesting that I am wearing the uniform uh, of the Sheriff of L.A. County because it is the first uniform I saw approximately in the first grade when I said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to wear. I tell you that story because at the foundation of who I am and what I believe in, uh, we will not be successful without the support of the community. So as I'm laying this foundation, as I'm setting this tone, it is one of not us versus them, but that the community is our lifeline. It's our bloodline. Uh, we reduce crime only with the community. We improve the quality of life only with the community. But there are going to be challenges. Uh, there are going to be times when things occur uh, that people will not agree upon. This is why I have been working very hard in the last hundred days uh, going into different communities, establishing and reestablishing relationships with some of our communities of color because I want them to see me not only when things are going wrong, but when things are going good because we're building those credits that we need to impact our communities. There's a lot of work to do, don't get me wrong, but I think in 2023, we're in a better place than say we were even 10 years ago or beyond. But just to emphasize, there's a lot of work to do and I'm ready to do it. Uh, to address specifically some of the work that needs to be done, uh, the issue of deputy gangs in the department, and I know that uh, you've promised uh, more cooperation with the Civilian Oversight Commission and to uh, looking into these uh, gangs. Uh, what specifically, what specific steps are you taking inside the department uh, from your office to address that issue and maybe ferret some of these individuals out? So during uh, my campaign uh, to become the sheriff of L.A. County, uh, it was very apparent from the feedback I was getting from the, our community that this was a very important, one of the top issues. I made it very clear uh, coming into this job uh, that if elected a sheriff, I would do everything I could to eradicate uh, deputy gangs, cliques, uh, whatever you want to call them. So uh, one of the, the steps I have taken is we have worked with the county CEO and we planned and got funding for what we're calling the Office of Constitutional Policing. It is led by Eileen Decker. Eileen Decker is a very well-known community leader. Uh, she is a former U.S. attorney. If you look at her resume and history uh, and you go back to the, the days of uh, Baca and Tanaka, she was very prevalent. So I'm talking about somebody who really knows what they're doing. She is now in the process of hiring several attorneys, auditors, and investigators. Uh, they will be in a position, will not, only, not only will they be dealing with the issue of uh, deputy gangs, uh, policies, the Civilian Oversight Commission just came out with their 27 recommendations. They will be also working uh, through those recommendations with our partners in labor, contract cities, because those things impact. But as importantly, uh, the Sheriff's Department has several consent decrees, settlement agreements, and I believe based on things that have happened in the last several years, we're going to get a couple more. And I need somebody who understands that it is critical that one, we change our behavior, two, we comply with the consent decrees, and three, eventually get out of the consent decrees because they are costing our taxpayers millions of dollars, and that is not something we want to do. 
Let me ask you one last question, and then we're going to have to go. Uh, in the 100 days since you've been sheriff, is there something that really, either good or bad, surprises you the most being sheriff? I, I haven't been shocked by anything per se, but I'm very pleasantly surprised by the quality of employees that the sheriff's department has. The men and women, both sworn and professional staff that are working, are extremely committed and passionate about safety in our community. Uh, and um, I'm not totally surprised by that, but the, the way they have welcomed me and the way they are, even as I'm talking about changes that are significant, nobody wants to always change, not whether it's policing or anything else, but they realize that the image of this department has been hurt in the last several years, and they want to do a course correction, and they're all in. And, and I'm excited to move forward. I'm excited for the next 100 days and beyond because I think, uh, I'm, actually, I believe and I know we're going to make things better. Uh, and this community, we will not be talking about deputy gangs when we talk about the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in the future. We're going to be talking about all the good work they do on a daily basis. All We're right. going to hold you to that. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. That's why I'm here. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Sheriff uh, Robert Luna, more than 100 days on the job. Talking to us live in studio here on KNX In-Depth. That'll do it for today's episode. We'll be back Monday.